0: Okay, well, let's take our Bibles together. We're, uh, we're in the book of Genesis, and we'll turn to Genesis chapter 3. We're beginning the third chapter of Genesis, verses 1 through 7 as our text this morning. And uh, I'll give you a chance to turn there, if you're using the church Bible, page 2. First book of the Bible, page 2. All right. All right. Most of you have made your way there on your phones and rustling of pages has stopped. Let's uh, give our attention to God's word as it is being read for us. Hear the word of the Lord. Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, Did God actually say you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? She took of its fruit and ate, and she also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate. Then the eyes of both were opened, and they knew that they were naked, and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. This is God's Word. As we um, prepare, as I prepare, I want to ask you to invite you to join me in a prayer that we may have our hearts prepared to hear from the Lord. So let's pray. Father in heaven, we're grateful that you have spoken and this word comes to us so so easily. We have multiple copies of the Bible. We have it on our phones. It's because of its commonality around us to us, it's easy to neglect it. But we don't want to be neglectful right now, Father. We want to be attentive and uh, so we pray that by your spirit, you would uh, plant your living and active word in our hearts. Lord, as well as the one uh, who is tasked with proclaiming this truth, um, I pray that my weaknesses will not get in the way. I'm one who needs to hear this word as much as anyone else in this room, and, and God, I pray that what I do now would aid in us hearing from you. More than anything, Lord, we need your voice to transcend mine, so make that happen. And may it be for the glory of your Son, our Savior, Jesus, in whose name we ask these things. Amen. But Back when I was in uh, high school, uh, in, in my church youth group, there was, a, there was a guy, one of our guys in our youth group, he'd taken a Chevy Chevelle, and it had been uh, written off. The back end was completely destroyed. But he took that car and he... Uh, he made a, a project car, and he made this unusual truck-like thing by, by cutting off the back end of the thing and forming a weird sort of pickup bed, made it out of beautiful wood. Anyway, the thing was weird, and, and some people appreciated it, others didn't. He, he spent a lot of time working on it. But not weeks after the project was finished, his older brother took that car out for a spin and totaled it, completely totaled it. And we're hearing the story, and we saw, we saw the wreck after they'd towed it back to his drive, and we said, huh, what a shame. What a shame. That beautiful work, what a shame. All of those dollars, thousands of dollars, parts and paint, all destroyed. What a shame. Well, as we turn our attention to our Bible text this morning, I wonder if you can imagine an environment of total innocence, an ideal world where where all of our interactions are absolutely pure, never a hurtful word, or deed never even the remotest bitter or selfish or vile thought on the part of yourself or others well this is the state of things at the beginning of our text yet quickly we're introduced to a crafty creature a creature that adam well knew he had named him Well, Adam and Eve lived in this ideal land. They lived in perfect fellowship with God and with one another. But this creature, he slithers in and sets in motion a domino effect of destruction that expels the humans from that ideal land and from close fellowship with God and that close fellowship with one another. Now, of course, the blame just isn't on the serpent. Adam and Eve fell into this trap and they were responsible for their own choices And not only that, we, their offspring, continue in the same tradition and fall into the very same trap. And all of this leaves us saying, what a shame, what a shame. We long for what was lost. But as we look back on that ideal place, never having experienced it for ourselves and wondering what it's like to see how it was lost, what a shame. Well, here in our text, we find the reason for shame. That's both the tragedy of what was lost, but our shame as people. So, as we unpack the shame of our first parents, we can certainly take to heart this instruction. We can have our eyes opened to the way in which sin affects and infects our hearts. So, for our purposes this morning, I have three headings under which to organize our thoughts, and they are these. This will serve as my outline. First, first heading is deception. Second, illicit desire, and third, consequence. So, deception, illicit desire, and consequence. I'll organize how we uh, unpack this Bible text this morning. First of all, deception. Deception. None of us like to be deceived. If you've ever uh, entered into an agreement, and like a handshake agreement, and you've, you've had the conversation maybe to buy the car or, or whatever. And in the end, it was not what you thought it was. You feel kind of betrayed. You feel kind of, well, you feel betrayed. We don't like deception. And yet, how easily do we fall into it? In verse 1, we're told that this serpent is crafty more crafty than any other beasts of the field. And the word crafty here doesn't necessarily imply evil. It, or, or, or I should say the word crafty doesn't necessarily imply evil when it's used in other places in the Bible. But I take it that here it's a setup to the fact that Eve is ultimately deceived by him. So let's talk about the serpent for a moment. It would certainly seem strange to us that the serpent would speak. Seems odd. But, if we want to kind of put this into the context of the Bible, the oddity of it, I think, becomes a little less before us. If we consider Balaam's donkey, that would be Numbers 22, verse 28. Balaam's donkey was the means of an angel of God speaking to Balaam. A more recent event for those who are first hearing this creation story. So if that's the case, then it's not surprising that an evil spirit could speak through a creature such as a snake, a serpent. The significance of this scene in the garden means that from this point onward, the serpent would be really an archetype of all that opposes God and man. And we can see this as as the Bible unfolds. In the Bible, the serpent is a nemesis, a deadly scourge on the people of God. We could look at how God judged the people in Numbers 21, when they were grumbling and complaining, the Lord sent among them fiery serpents. Or you could think of how Jesus himself described the, the scribes and Pharisees. He called them a brood of vipers, poisonous snakes, Matthew 23, 33. And even think of the ministry of the Apostle Paul, when they had been shipwrecked on an island and waiting to go get to Rome making a fire. The Apostle Paul was, uh, a serpent came out of the the bundled sticks there as he was preparing that fire and fixed on his hand. And in a sense, that that serpent was, that poisonous snake was, was there to potentially thwart the continuation of the Apostle Paul's ministry. Of course, he shook it off into the fire. So who is this serpent, this nemesis? Or maybe better, who is the voice behind the serpent? Now, of course, we assume it. We assume it. If we've had enough of the Bible, if, we, if we've seen the artistic renderings by Michelangelo and uh, I forget that other artist that's well-known. But anyway, you've seen the artist's renderings of the, of the, of the Garden of Eden scene at the, at the temptation. We assume that, that that serpent is Satan himself. Of course, the book of Revelation confirms this. Revelation 12, 9 the great dragon, we're told there, was thrown down, that ancient serpent who is called the devil and Satan, the deceiver of the whole world. Well, of course, Jesus uh, reinforced this truth when he described the work of the devil, placing him effectively in describing his, his work, his destructive work in the Garden of Eden. Jesus described him this way, John 8:44. He was a murderer from the beginning and does not stand in the truth because there is no truth in him. What, a deceiver, right? When he lies, he speaks out of his own character, for he is a liar and the father of lies. So so there's no doubt in our minds that this serpent has been possessed in some sense by the very voice of Satan. So how does this crafty tempter deceive? What's happening here? Well, first of all, he impugns God's goodness. I want you to notice verse 1. Did God actually say... That's not verse 1. Where is it? It's a verse... It is 1. Thank you. I was right. <laughs> Thank you for confirming that. I put in my notes, I'm going, that doesn't look right. So, verse 1. That's really the second paragraph in verse 1. Did God actually say... so? He says, you shall not eat of any tree in the garden. Did God actually say that? Hmm, interesting, right? Verse 1, you can see that we're, we're introduced to the Lord God, Yahweh, Elohim. And notice that the serpent, in referring to God, does not invoke the covenant name of God. He does not invoke the Yahweh. He cannot. He simply asks, did God actually say? And what this does, this questioning implies something to Eve. First of all, distance. The serpent not using the revealed name of the Lord, the covenant name of the Lord, distancing himself from the Lord. That God over there, that divine authority, did God actually say? So this this questioning impugns God's goodness. He's, He's really suggesting to Eve, God is holding out on you. He's not really for you. He doesn't really want what's best for you, does he? God's just a killjoy. Well, what did God actually say? Chapter 2, we look back. God actually said, The Lord commanded the man, saying, You may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. We well, can see the difference in what the tempter said and what God actually said. But that temptation ultimately led Eve to think less of the Lord in the moment. She started to fall for his deception. And what that thought in her mind did was it weakened her resistance to the serpent's further deceptions. And listen, we've got to understand this. Brothers and sisters in Christ, succumbing to temptation begins with doubting the goodness of God. And in the moment when you're thinking, should I do this thing or not? Should I have this thing or not? Should I go down that road or not? The reasons we would disobey God is because we're thinking in that moment well, the thing you gave me, that's really not good enough. And I I think I want something that I think is better. So if you think God has done you wrong, if you think that he is not as good as he should be, let me tell you, you're in danger of further deceptions by your own flesh, from the world around you to be sure, or certainly from the devil himself. The deception impugned God's character. Secondly, the serpent distorts God's word. And we've already seen that. Verses 4 and 5, he says to Eve, you will not surely die. Complete contradiction, right? For God knows when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. Not die. You shall not die. Direct contradiction, right? And then he exaggerates. He, He vastly inflates the supposed benefit You will be like God. Well, in Eve's weakened resistance, doubting the goodness of God, she then falls into this trap, and she begins to agree with the serpent, adding even her own distortions. Verses 2 and 3. We may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden, but God said, you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden. True. True. Neither shall you touch it, lest you die. Not true. Eve added, neither shall you touch it. God didn't say don't touch it. He just said don't eat it. And notice here, Eve has now distanced herself from the Lord, referring to Him as merely God, not the Lord God, Yahweh Elohim. Now, I understand here some scholars might suggest that it's an an anachronism to to say as much. God revealed his covenant name to Moses. This is later in Exodus 3. But I would suggest uh, as well that just because Moses gets that revelation of the divine name after receiving his commission does not mean that he did not, the Lord God, did not reveal himself in this way to Adam and Eve. It was a very personal relationship. They understood if they understood nothing else, they understood their relationship with the Lord. Be that as it may, I simply take here that Eve has taken the bait and she goes along with the serpent and adds to the Lord's command. To make it seem even to the serpent now, God is being harsh and unreasonable. Neither shall you touch it. Eve now impugning God's character and twisting his words. And we've got to pause here and think. How many destructive things, how many sins have we fallen into? How many things can we see in the world that happen that are sinful and evil when God's word is taken out of context, when God's goodness is impugned? Now, we also know that not every temptation that we, that befalls us, that we experience is a direct temptation a direct act of the devil himself not everything can we claim like only older people will know this when flip wilson said the devil made me do it right not everything the devil made me do but it is true that his lies have so infected the world and have been so bought into by the world that in effect when we believe the world and go its way we have fallen into the trap of the devil The descent into purposeful rebellion is by a thousand steps of compromise. So let me encourage you, brothers and sisters, watch out. Guard your heart from doubting God's word. Guard your heart from doubting his goodness in any way. Don't take the path of Eve. Second, second, illicit desire Now, I think this is self-evident to us that we're all created with appetites. We all have longings and desires for love, for companionship, for food. These are not bad things. But it is how those desires are satisfied and through whom and even when. How, through whom, and when. And that is the difference between sin and righteousness. So, for example, someone has a, a good desire to provide for his family. That is a righteous desire. But circumstances are such that he loses his job and he thinks his options are few. So he steals. Good desire, right? Satisfied in a bad way. That's an illicit or forbidden desire. So that was a situation with Eve, right? Now she's already doubted God's goodness. She's already doubted now his word. And now she's open to a new possibility. Something new. The doubt is there. There's now a new possibility before her eyes. Verse 6. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, well, just stop there. Good for food. Food's not bad. Food is good. God gave many, many fruit trees for food. God wanted Adam and Eve to have food. Food is good. And what she saw? Oh, it was a beautiful tree, as Bobby was saying in Sunday school this morning. It was a delight to the eyes. Seeing beauty? That's not wrong. And Eve wasn't forbidden from looking at it. She was just not to eat it. And then to make one wise, she saw that it was desired to make one wise. Wisdom, God is not against Adam and Eve growing in wisdom. <laughs> but here, the knowledge of good and evil from that tree for Eve, that was not wisdom. You see, there, was, there were good desires, all of them. But to be achieved by Eve and then Adam in a way that God expressly forbade. So again, what's going on here? She doubts God's goodness in his word. She lacks contentment in what God had already given, the rest of the trees. And rather than receive what God had given, she acts on an illicit desire and decides to take what had not been given, desire. James describes, in the book of James, he describes How sin finds its genesis in illicit desire. James 1, 14 and 15, each person is tempted. Now think of your own life circumstances, the times that you have fallen into sin. Each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. Of course, it's tempted. What would it be? If it wasn't desirous, we wouldn't fall for it, would we? If there wasn't some perceived good in the thing, we wouldn't go for it, would we? But he says this, the desire, when it has conceived, taken, gives birth to sin. And here's the horror of it all. And sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. That's the very thing that the Lord God told Eve and Adam. In the day you eat of it, you shall surely die. Yeah, the fruit was appealing. It was appealing to the eyes. Eve was greedy. It was appealing to her flesh. Eve lusted after that food. And in thinking that she could become like God, it appealed to her sense of self. And ultimately, it was pride. All of that there. And so I have no doubt perhaps that that John was perhaps thinking, John the Apostle was thinking that, the scene in the garden when he said this, For all that is in the world, 1 John 2, 16, the desires of the flesh, lust, the desires of the eyes, greed, and the pride of life. It's not from the Father, but it's from the world. So what do we do with this? At this point, maybe it's worthwhile asking what is your forbidden fruit? Maybe you're thinking right now the things that easily tempt you it's simply the desire for something that God has not given. It's to acquire something in a way that God has not provided. And, and I know this is true. In every single day, in countless ways, we're confronted with opportunities to take what God has not given because we think and we're being deceived that that thing is somehow good in the moment. So for example, someone insults you, what do you do? When someone insults you, that's unjust, right? What do you want? You want justice. It's a good thing, justice. But God has not given it for you to repay that evil. That's his domain alone. God says, vengeance is mine. I will repay, says the Lord. So, the temptation is there, right? Something so, so small, so, so seemingly insignificant in the moment, we're just choosing what we think is good in the moment, I'll get back at you. Return an insult for an insult. If you take the revenge in the moment, that's forbidden fruit. Maybe your marriage is frustrating you. What do you do? Well, God created marriage as a a pattern after Christ's love for His bride. And if you pattern your marriage after that, your marriage should go well. If husband and wife pattern their lives after the love of Christ for His bride, It should go well. But maybe it's not going well. How can you be satisfied? Do you look away from your spouse? Do you imagine another? That's forbidden fruit. Listen, we've been created by God in the image of God and our desires and longings can only be fulfilled by what God has given. And God Wants us to be satisfied. He created us to be satisfied in Him alone. Well, finally, talk about consequence. Consequence. Uh, there's some kind of differences, some kinds of differences that are celebrated in society, right? And we do this all the time. Unusual skills, athletic ability, these are differences that we celebrate. Musical talent, leadership ability for an approved cause. And the consequence of of that difference is adulation, approval, acceptance, right? But of course, there are some kinds of differences that are subject to public shame as a consequence. Certain criminal activities. We wish it was all criminal activities, right? Perversions. And, And I'm sure you can think of a myriad of things that are examples of things that are differences that result in shame as a consequence. So we're talking about shame here as a consequence. So what is that? Shame. As a noun, it's simply the feeling of humiliation and distress as a result or as a consequence of the deep disapproval of someone else. So if we think of shame as a verb, it's simply to act in a way so as to make someone feel humiliated or distressed as a result of your disapproval. So the feeling of shame is present when we feel deep disapproval or ridicule because of the thing that makes us different. Now, look at the text with that in mind. What's happening? Eve, then Adam, took the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Verse 7, then the eyes of both were opened And they knew that they were naked. And they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. Hiding. Hiding something. That's new. That is very new. That's an experience they'd never had before. Hiding. Only a few verses earlier at the end of chapter 2 we're told. And the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. What are they feeling here? They're feeling shame. What a drastic change. So what did this knowledge of good and evil give to them? Well, in a moment, they were, they were plunged from innocence to shame. Eve there believed the lie of the serpent, and in taking the forbidden fruit, she thought she would become like God. Adam must have agreed because he ate of it too. She thought she would become like God. But you know what? God never feels shame. God does not need to hide It didn't make them more like God, but what did they do? In their shame, they sewed fig leaves together to make loincloths. So between them, think of this, between them, they covered what was different about them. Next section, we're going to see them hiding from God. Now God made man and, and woman in his own image. And making them, they were innocent. They felt no shame. Their nakedness was uncorrupted by anything else. Now, in their sin, their minds were defiled. And having been introduced to the knowledge of evil as opposed to what is good, it set before them a veritable buffet of vile options that they had never known before. Do we not know this by experience? Maybe you can think of a period in your life when you Consciously rebelled against God. One act of rebellion, one moral compromise in one thing led to another compromise, another lie believed, another act of rebellion, and then it just snowballed. And by God's grace, you're here this morning, so you know you can be rescued from that. But but just to get the anatomy of it, right? We're created in God's image. We're meant to be like him. We're meant to be like God. Eve wanted to be like God. But in, in the end, she became more unlike God. The Lord says, You shall therefore be holy, for I am holy, Leviticus 11.45. So, when we're not like Him, that is to say, when we sin, we feel shame. We've got to cover what's different. And the fact is, it's not just that sometimes we sin, but that we're born with Adam's built-in consequence. And because God is holy and without sin, our sin and sinfulness as has already been stated makes us different from God, and we are desperate to cover it. Shame is our consequence before God for our sin. It's built in. Proverbs 13:5 says the righteous hates falsehood, but the wicked brings shame and disgrace. We get that. And in the end, the ultimate consequence of our shame is not just a momentary humiliation, but eternal condemnation. Romans 6.23 says, the wages of sin is death. So where do we go from here? Where we ended in our text. There's not hopefulness yet. We're going to get there. And we we have to complete the story, even though it's not in our text this morning. How do we exchange our shame for the delight of God? How, How can our fellowship with God be restored? You know, that was the hope of the Israelites. Now remember, this story was written down for the Israelites, just as they're about to possess the good and broad land, a land flowing with milk and honey, the land of Canaan. Now, as they're about to possess that land, having been reminded of how Adam and Eve lost the good land that they're about to possess, this was for them a true cautionary tale. I say true. It's not just a tale. It's not a myth. It is a true story, but it's cautionary. And as we look to the Israelites, we see how they gained and lost the land again. It's a true cautionary tale for us. When they, the Israelites, turned to idols, they became just like the nations that they had dispossessed. And they, in that act, became very unlike God in character. And they were expelled from that land. They proved that they needed something. And it's a lesson for us, brothers and sisters, What they proved is that they needed something, someone divine to take away their shame. God promised it to the Israelites. Isaiah 54, 4, Fear not, for you will not be ashamed. Be not confounded, for you will not be disgraced, for you will forget the shame of your youth and the reproach of your widowhood and will remember no, and you will remember no more. Their promise is likewise our promise. We We need someone to take our shame. We need someone to assume the fundamental way that we are not like God in character, that we are not like God in moral purity and in righteousness. We need someone. On the cross, the God-man, Jesus the Christ, he hung. In his life, in his ministry, he spoke the very words of God with power and wisdom and authority. And his words were a rebuke to the self-righteous and wisdom and comfort for the outcast and restoration for the sinner. Jesus did the very works of God. He authenticated his message with signs and wonders. He he healed the lame. He restored sight to the blind. He changed the weather. He raised the dead. He was falsely accused. He was tortured with whips. He was nailed onto a beam and hoisted before the eyes of all to be ridiculed and humiliated. And those who cried in approval saying crucify him were crying, shame, shame. You deserve it. And the ones that didn't understand said, oh, what a shame. He died the death of one cursed by God. And our consequence became his. For the scripture says, Romans ten eleven: everyone who believes in him will not be put to shame. So here we are, the heirs of Adam's shame, Eve's shame. And we who have looked to Christ in faith can know for certain that our curse, our humiliation, our shame, that's why Jesus died. And so having believed, having believed in him, what do we do now? And that's a glorious gift, right? But how do we live our lives? See, knowing that we've been rescued from the consequence of our sin, that our shame was was taken upon the Son of God. We need to continue to look to Jesus in faith. That's how we live each day. And because of the cross, we have been freed from the consequence of our own sin. We've been also freed from the power of that sin in the present. And so what do we do, brothers and sisters, knowing that our shame has been taken away at the cross? We live in light of that, constantly, looking to Jesus, as the writer of Hebrews says, 12, 1 and 2. Let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. We need endurance because we're still facing the battle, right? We are still confronted by the the temptations of the evil one whispering in our ear. So it takes endurance. And how do we do this? We run the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him Endured the cross. Here's the beauty. Despising the shame. He took our shame. Despised it. Where is he now? And he is seated at the right hand, a throne of God. So when we, brothers and sisters, continue to look to Jesus, our minds and our hearts are guarded against the crafty, serpentine deceptions of the evil one. That's what we do. We run with endurance by looking to Jesus, filling our minds with Him. And so when you hear the voice of the evil one in your ear, what do you do? Look to Jesus. You're going to leave this room this morning and you're going to be confronted with an option. Somebody cuts you off. Respond in anger or forgiveness. What do you do? Look to Jesus. Seemingly innocuous way of, of little consequence, but every single moment of our days is an opportunity when faced with an opportunity to, to give in to the tempter's schemes and deception or look to Jesus. And when you hear His voice in the world and the systems that are around us, what do you do to discern? To make sense of it, you look to Jesus. So look to Jesus. So what do we do as we wrap up this morning? Knowing that the tempter is crafty, understand his strategy, how he wants to undermine the goodness of God and and cause you to doubt his word. So let's guard our hearts against the deception. Eve fell, Adam fell. We have all fallen. But you're not doomed to fall the next time. Look to Jesus. And anytime we seek to satisfy even a very good desire in a way that is contrary to God's word, know this, it's sin. It's sin. What do we do? Look to Jesus. The consequence? Well, that's been taken away if you're in Christ this morning, so praise God for his grace. Remind yourself that he took your shame. Keep going back to the picture of the cross in your mind as it's revealed in the scripture. Go there again and again and again and be reminded your shame has been taken away. He has already borne your consequence. Cautionary tale. Such a shame what was lost in Eden. Even more was the shame that they bore. But what is glorious is that Jesus has borne the entirety of our shame. Well, let's pray. Father, we thank you for the immensity of grace that you have shown to us. Vile that we are. All of our rebellion, our idolatry, our greed, our, our pride, our lust, our coveting, a myriad of other ways that we have fallen short of your glory. And would it not, was it not for the sacrifice of your Son, our Savior Jesus, on the cross, we would be condemned. The world would say it was a shame that an innocent man or a seemingly righteous man was condemned to die. But it was for our shame that he did so. So, Father, we thank you. Teach us increasingly to look to him to walk in this new life as we hope for the day of Eden restored. Help each of us to run the race with endurance looking to Jesus. And it's in his name we pray it. Amen.